Take your Bibles and turn to Psalm 46, please. Psalm 46. We looked at Psalm 46 last Sunday, and I'm glad that I had too much to share from Psalm 46, as it gives us opportunity to land there again this morning. And in light of some of the other Psalms that we have looked at, which seem to have a bit of a negative focus rather than a positive focus, it is refreshing and encouraging for us to focus here in Psalm 46. It is good to be encouraged by an encouraging psalm, isn't it? And what could be more encouraging in these chaotic days that we live in than to hear, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help, or ever-present help in trouble. That's where I derived the title of the message from. That is the first verse of Psalm 46. The title of the message is, God is your abundantly available help. That phrase, ever-present help, is translated in the footnotes of my Bible literally as being abundantly available help. God is your abundantly available help. And I know I spoke briefly on this last week, but aren't you glad that God is an abundantly available help? That He is an ever-present help. He is available, constantly available, And it's not just as if God is somewhere there that we have to go and approach Him, but He is an abundantly available help here, wherever that may be. He is an able help. The Sovereign Lord of all is able to intervene. That help is abundant. It is more than we could ask or more than we could need. This is an incredible reality. And I don't know if your life has been more chaotic over the last few months than normal. Perhaps your life is always chaotic. But I have found myself in the last few months, the last six or eight months, uttering the words, God help me, far more frequently than I used to. And I've been noticing as well that when I utter, please God help me, I tend not to be so worried about things, not quite so anxious about things. It it hasn't necessarily made the chaos any less. I haven't noticed my situation immediately change, but as we cast our cares and our concerns upon the ever-present Lord who is abundantly available to help, we receive help. We receive help. We receive peace. We receive strength. We receive grace for that moment. We receive His mercy. And so we walk through that chaos unaffected by it. Well, I don't know if unaffected would be a proper term, but certainly less affected by it because God is our refuge and strength a very present and ever-present help in trouble. Now, last week we looked at about two-thirds of this passage. We're going to read it all again this morning, and then I'm going to give an overview of the first two points, and then we'll continue from there. So, why don't we stand together this morning? I'll ask you to rise. We're going to go to the Lord in prayer, and then we're going to read Psalm 46. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity we have to look into your word. We thank you that it is quick and powerful, and we ask that this morning... As we have prayed so often by your Holy Spirit, you would discern between the thoughts and intents of our heart. Convict of truth and of righteousness, Lord. Guide us and direct us into these things. Encourage us and strengthen us. Meet us where we are at. And we thank you that you are more than able to. We thank you that you are that abundantly available help in time of trouble. We ask, Lord, now that you would minister to us by your word and that we would be sensitive to hear from you, to receive from you, and to so walk according to your desire for us. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, 
even though the earth be removed and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, though its waters roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with its swelling. There is a river whose streams shall make glad the city of God, the holy place of the tabernacle of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God shall help her just at the break of dawn. The nations raged. The kingdoms removed. He uttered his voice. The earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Come, behold the works of the Lord, who has made desolations in the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariot in the fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. May God bless to us the reading of his word. You may be seated. I want to remind you of the context of this psalm, or at least what we assume, what we believe to be the context or the situation into which this psalm was written. It was, we believe, the deliverance of Israel from the invading armies of Sennacherib, king of Assyria. That conflict and God's intervention can be found in Isaiah chapter 36 and 37. Sennacherib had conquered all of Judah, as well as all of the surrounding countries. They had swept over the entire land, and they had finally come to the gates of Jerusalem. And there they challenged Hezekiah and the men of Israel to war. They threatened him and all Israelites along with him, and they mock and they slander God. For a little further context, I didn't share this last week, but Rabshakeh, that is Sennacherib's general, thinks so little of the inhabitants of Jerusalem that he offers them up to 2,000 horses to come out and to fight him against if they even have the men to ride on them. That is how outnumbered they were. That is how despised they were by this army of Assyria. Hezekiah goes to the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah goes to God, and God responds and intervenes. God sends the angel of the Lord into the camp of the Assyrians, and the angel of the Lord kills 185,000 Syrian warriors. Then Sennacherib returns to Assyria, where his own sons rise up and they kill him. That's my Reader's Digest condensed edition of the account. God intervenes against incredible odds and completely annihilates and destroys the enemy. But place yourself in the position of the Israelites at the point where the armies of the king of Assyria are gathered against you. They have conquered every fortified city of Judah. They are all gathered here en masse, and they have a reputation Not only have they conquered, but they have marched across swaths of land. They have conquered foreign kings. They have denied foreign gods. They are the superpower of the day, and there is nothing that is going to stand in their way except your feeble gates. They have jeered you and mocked you and ridiculed you. They have the upper hand, and yet God intervenes. He intervenes in might and power by destroying the opposition, not just strengthening Israel, but by destroying Israel. 185,000 warriors, and the king of the enemy as well. God is your abundantly available help. Do you think they knew what that meant? Do you think they knew the meaning of that phrase? I think they did, which is why it was penned. God is your abundantly, abundantly available help. And I trust that, although your situation may not be that dire, that you know the meaning of that phrase experientially as well, that God is your abundantly available help. 
In the first stanza of this psalm in verse 1 to 3, we saw that God is our security. When all the world has gone mad, God is our security. The psalmist states, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, even though, and though, and though, and though, we will still not fear. And you could basically put anything that you are or that you will experience in there as one of those, those. Take the largest calamity that you can fathom and then add three more to it. And even then, we need not fear, for God is our refuge and strength. In this psalm, you see the very convulsions of the earth and flooding of the oceans. And He says that they are not a worthy cause of fear when Christ is with us. And whether it's speaking literally of this physical calamity, or whether it's speaking of the implosion of authorities and governing powers and all that is above us, our response is the same. And it should be the same as theirs. Therefore, we will not fear, even though. For we are secure in Jesus Christ. If He is your Lord and Savior, you have nothing to fear. Nothing can cause undue worry or stress when you rest in Christ. Nothing should cause undue worry or stress when you rest in Christ. The reality is that we are pilgrims and strangers here on this earth, just passing through this physical world, Even this physical body is just a temporary dwelling place in preparation of our eternal dwelling place with the Lord. So even if all of these temporary things are removed, it is simply shortening the time until we can go to be with our Lord and Savior where we were meant to be and purposed to be. We go to be with the one who we love and who loves us. So yes, the world is going mad around us, but regardless of that fact, we do not need to fear. Seems like the last six months in particularly, everything has gone upside down. Perhaps for some of you, it's been building up much longer than that. But it need not bother you. You need not fret about it. You need not be anxious about it. But trust in God, even though. And even though, and even though, and even though. Four times it says here, our security is in God. The second stanza in verse 4 to 7, we saw that God is my peace when the enemy attacks. For Jerusalem, this would have been very real. They are surrounded by enemies. They're overwhelmed. They're outnumbered. Nothing seems good. There's nothing coming their way but impending doom. There's, even in the midst of that, though, this incredible sense of calm. Well, there should have been a sense of calm. I would have liked to be there right before and then right after and see the change that took place in the attitude and the expression of the people. But they should have been calm, for God, it says, is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. Chaos and calamity outside the wall, but inside? The sense of security and calm and peace because God is there. And the picture that is given is of this steady flowing river providing nourishment and providing sustenance. God is that for the believer today. In an even more powerful way, God is that for his child today. They had the tabernacle in Jerusalem, which was the dwelling place of God on earth. But according to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18 to 20, which is in the New Testament and so is to New Testament believers, and it's about the, the very physical body, it says, flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Or do you not know? That your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. 
Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are, the, which are God's, which belong to God. Do you not know the Holy Spirit lives within the child of God? If you have trusted in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and everlasting life, He has sealed you and indwelt you with His Holy Spirit. Don't sin against your body here, it's saying, by committing sexual immorality, because your body doesn't belong to you. The body of the born-again child of God belongs to God Himself. Your body is the temple of His Spirit. God lives in you by His Spirit. You are the dwelling place of God on earth if you have owned Him as Lord and Savior. So you can say with even greater confidence than the psalmist could that God is in the midst of her, of him, of you. They could say we have peace like this incredible flowing river. We have calm and assurance because God is in the midst of her. We can say that, believe it, and it be expressed as a reality as well. Even when the enemies rage and the kingdoms of the earth here, it says, are moved against Jerusalem, and even when they're moved against you, you are at peace for you have the abiding presence of God within you. And this ever-abiding presence of God is the all-powerful Lord of all Himself. And He has, as it says here, only to utter the words, and the earth would melt. How puny do the nations of the earth appear alongside of the eternal, omnipotent God, that God who is in us and is for us, and in whom we rest confidently and securely and peacefully in Him. That was where we concluded last week. We didn't quite finish the section in verse 4 to 7 because I introduced verse 7, but I didn't delve into it. Verse 7 says, The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Once again, we know the peace of God through His only begotten Son, Jesus Christ. And we have the peace of God in our present situation because of the abiding presence of God. The Lord of hosts is with us. There is infinite peace there. But what does each of those two phrases mean, and and what does it mean when they're put together in the manner that they are? The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. God is the Lord of hosts. The word host means, according to Strong's Concordance, a mass of persons, especially regularly organized for war or an army. It has been rightly translated in some versions, and at least in one song, As angel armies, the God of angel armies is always by my side. Do you remember the account of 2 Kings chapter 6? The long and short of that is that the king of Syria, the other one was Assyria, this is the king of Syria, and I'm mixing them up. The king of Syria came to Dothan with his army in search of Elisha. And Elisha's servant gets up in the morning and he discovers this horde of an army outside says the entire city is surrounded by horses and chariots of Syria. They, they actually wanted to kill Elisha because he was a spokesman to the king at that time and was whispering into the king's ears exactly what this king of Syria was doing. And Elisha's servant, he, he comes back and says, Alas, my master, what shall we do? He said, We're surrounded, we're defeated. And Elisha says this, Do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. Then the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. City surrounded by horses and chariots of Syria. But the mountains were full of horses and chariots of fire 
from God. That is the picture that enters my mind when it says here, the Lord of hosts is with us. The Lord of angel armies. And don't get too caught up with heavenly armies as God is God alone and is greater than all the armies of heaven and earth and hell combined. But it is incredible to realize that there is an army of angels who serve the Lord and that the commander of that army, Jesus Christ, is with us. So that's what it means when it says the Lord of hosts is with us. But then it goes on and says, the God of Jacob is our refuge. The, na- the name Jacob literally means heel grabber. You remember at his birth, as a second born twin, he grabbed the heel of Esau, his brother. And that name heel grabber, or another word is supplanter, which is important there, one who takes the place of another. That became a prophecy of his life. He convinced his brother Esau to give up the privilege of the firstborn for a bowl of stew. Then he deceived his father Isaac and he stole the birthright. He was a cheat. He was a deceiver. Yet he was amazingly blessed of God. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Now you put those two thoughts together. The God of angel armies is also the God of fallen, wretched, sinful mankind. The God of angel armies is also the God of the liar and the deceiver and the cheat that Jacob was. You have these two truths kind of juxtaposition next to each other, which reveal the glory of who God is. This is the God who is with us. This is the God who is our refuge. He is glorious. He is glorious in His majesty and power as the Lord of hosts. And yet He is equally glorious in His grace and mercy as the God, the refuge of the sinner Jacob. This is the God who is our refuge. No matter how you may view yourself, how rightly you may view yourself as a wretched sinner, the Lord of hosts is with you. The God of Jacob is your refuge. So no matter how the world may rage, and no matter how the kingdoms of the world may crash against the gates of the church, we will not be moved, for we are at peace in Him, the God of hosts, who is this God of this wretched sinner. In Christ I am indwelt by His Spirit, secure in His arms, and at peace in His protection. The third point of this message in verse 8 to 11 is that God is my hope, even when all around is hopeless. So He is our security. He is our peace. And thirdly, we see here that He is our hope. Now this passage had a present-day application for the people of Israel. When they read this, they would know exactly what it was talking to. They had endured that time of fear that spread across the nations as this army marched closer and closer. They had endured that time where Sennacherib's men are gathered at the gates and they are mocking and they are cursing and they are blaspheming. They had wrestled through this very practical question of whether to surrender and hope that their lives would be granted to them or whether to go out and fight and die. They had wrestled with the question of whether they should try to flee to Egypt. Who else they could get? I mean, they were in the midst of an incredible one-sided war. I'm sure they had looked at every possible scenario. And then God intervenes. They discovered that God truly was their refuge and strength, that very present help in trouble. They had seen the works of God. And as it says in verse 8 and 9, they say, come behold the works of the Lord. They had seen him respond to this enemy and destroy this enemy. 
Come behold the works of the Lord who has made desolations in the earth. He makes war cease to the ends of the earth. In Isaiah chapter 37, which is the account of that in part, it says, Then the angel of the Lord went out and killed in the camp of the Assyrians 185,000. And when people arose early in the morning, there were the corpses, all dead. Imagine that. You've been under siege. I don't know how long it was. You're outnumbered. You're outmaneuvered. You're absolutely without hope. And then in the morning, you get up and you notice something different. Maybe it was the sound. It was probably the first thing that they noticed different. They've had a massive army surrounding their city. It, quite, it creates quite a clamor. And they wake up in the morning to the sound of silence. And then they go out and maybe there was a different smell in the air as well. I would assume there probably was. If not now, pretty soon it was going to start happening. But all that has been taking place is suddenly stopped. All the, the noise and the clamor and the boisterousness of those, the, the insults that are being hurled at them, the blaspheme that's being hurled at them from the sentries standing out close to the gates there, as close as they could get, it's all done. And then you go out and you see scavengers and vultures. And you go a little further and you explore and you find 180,000 corpses. When they say, come behold the works of the Lord who has made desolations in the earth, he makes wars to cease to the ends of the earth. They were speaking literally. The superpower of the day had been reduced to nothing. It was shattered. The threat is gone. It's dead. God is victorious. I can't imagine the thoughts going through those Israelites' heads that morning. I can't imagine the relief. They probably wouldn't have experienced relief initially. It would have been just puzzlement, awe. Shock? Something like that happens? And yet they go from this position of hopelessness, utterly, to hope, to potential, to promise, to life. God is a God of hope. Now this passage is speaking literally for them, but it is also looking forward to the day when Christ returns to the earth, when Christ will reign on the earth. There is an eternal sense to these words. Christ is coming back in glory and power, and he will right every wrong, and he will destroy the armies that stand against him. And I think on that day, we're going to have opportunity to look out at all the desolations that the Lord has caused. We'll see the aftermath of war. We'll also see the beauty of weapons of violence being broken and demolished. There is hope for the child of God. No matter how much the world may rage against the church today or may rage against God, God is victorious. And you are in Christ, so you are victorious as well. And on that day when those weapons of violence are pounded into implements, what a sight that's going to be. What a scene that will be. What a glory to realize the hope of the Lord. And it isn't just temporary. This was temporary for the Israelites. There would arise another battle. There would arise another war. But it will be eternal for those who are in Christ. The hope that we have is not that everyone will join your side and will make peace with the king, though that may be and it should be our desire. But the hope that we have is that confident assurance that God will finally and completely settle the accounts. God will wipe out sin. 
we live in bodies of sin. Guess what? We're going to be dead and resurrected by that point, prayerfully, right? But I'm looking forward to that aspect as well, where sin is destroyed. Even, especially, not just even, but especially in my own body. when We will be raised like Christ, because we will see Him as He is, right? No more sin. No more temptation for evil. No more horrible desires or whatever it might be. No more struggle. Because victory will be fully, completely realized in Jesus Christ. On that day, though, He will destroy all that is of sin and all that is of ungodliness. He will one day cast Satan and all of his demons and all of his followers into the lake of fire. And we, those who are in Jesus Christ, will know eternal peace when our eternal hope is realized. But whether this is the present-day reality for the Jews or the future hope for the children of God, we have cause to heed verse 10. Be still. It says, God has made desolations in the earth. He makes wars to cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow, cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariot in fire. Be still, God says, and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. We don't have to wait until the day of the accomplishment of that hope or the fulfillment of that hope because that challenge is for us today as well, even now. Though the nations rage, be still. God is calling you to be still and to know that He is Lord. That's a good reminder for us right now in the midst of all that is taking place in the world. God says, be still. This is not a surprise to me. God says, be still and know that I'm in control. I have seen this. I have caused this. I am planning through this. I have purpose and intent. And it will be accomplished. And what will that be? God says that I will be exalted, that he will be exalted. Though the earth be removed, be still and know that he is God, he will be exalted. Though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, be still and know that he is God, he will be exalted. Though the waters roar and be troubled, be still and know that he is God, he will be exalted. Though the mountains shake with its swelling, be still and know that he is God, he will be exalted. Though the kingdoms rage, or though the nations rage and the kingdoms are moved, be still and know that he is God. He will be exalted. When all is said and done, God is God and he is God alone and he will be exalted. He will be glorified. Everything that ever was or ever will be is to the exaltation of the name of God, to his glory. Reminds us of Colossians chapter 1, speaking of Christ. It says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by Him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through Him and for Him. All things were created for Him. And He is before all things. And in Him all things consist. He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Then it says that He, in all things, may have the preeminence. That He may have the glory. That He may have the supremacy. That all things would exalt Him. It is all for God's glory. And if you are His child by grace through faith, in the finished work of Jesus Christ, it is for your good. The Lord of hosts is with us. 
The God of Jacob is our refuge. God is your abundantly available help. He is your security. He is my security. Even when the world has gone mad. He is your peace. He is my peace even when the enemies rage. And He is your hope. He is my hope. Even when all may appear hopeless. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this powerful psalm and for that timely reminder that you are glorious, you are exalted, you are above everything that comes into our life that we think is so monumental or so huge or so devastating maybe at times that you are far greater and you're in control. You are the sovereign Lord of all. And so as we face joys and struggles, Lord, cause us to turn to you, to trust in you, to submit to you, and to rejoice in your goodness through even these difficult times. We thank you, God, that you are our security, and that we can be hidden away in you, safe in the refuge of Christ. We thank you that you are our peace. And Lord, we confess that we fail in this so often. And we ask that you would take the turmoil that is within our own lives, within our own heart and our own minds. Lord, and you would... Empower us to walk in peace through that. Lord, if you will not remove the turmoil, grant us that strength that is necessary. It's a strange statement. The strength that is necessary to rest in you so that we would know your abiding peace. Lord, I thank you that you are our hope. The New Testament says that hope that is realized is not hope at all. But we, we wait for it eagerly. We anticipate that day when that hope will be realized. Our eternal hope in Jesus Christ, free from sin, free from, from death, free from this chaos and calamity that we may experience. Cause us to turn our eyes towards you. And as we hope in you, as we're secure in you, and as we have peace in you, God, I pray that it would radiate through us that our countenance would be lifted, our face would be lifted, that there'd be no way that anyone could wipe the smile off our face because we are so confident in you and what you're doing. So we, we cast ourselves upon your ever-present help. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.